Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, August 17th. This week brings yet another example of how this election year will be unlike any other. The Democratic National Convention kicks off tonight, virtually. There will be no backslapping, rallying, or hopeful celebrating on a crowded arena floor, as we've seen every four years. But we did get the standard surge of presidential race polls released over the past few days. So we'll discuss what they mean, not only for the race for the White House, but also, of course, the battle for Congress. And later, we'll break down a campaign ad on the airwaves in New York. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerome's Gem. Jerome's Gem, my number of the week, is 19. That's the number amendment to the U.S. Constitution which granted most women the right to vote. It was enacted 100 years ago Tuesday on August 18, 1920, when Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify. The volunteer state provided the requisite three-fourths of states needed to enshrine a constitutional amendment. The road to women's suffrage was long, and it was not until June 1919 that Congress finally adopted what would become the 19th Amendment. After that, it took about 14 and a half months for 36 out of the 48 states then in the Union, beginning with Wisconsin, Illinois, and Michigan six days after Congress sent the amendment to the states. The amendment was stuck on 35 states after Washington state ratified in March 1920, and then five months later, Tennessee finally put the amendment over the top. With 50 states now in the Union, it takes 38 states to ratify a constitutional amendment, and that's very hard to do, as is getting a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress to send it to the states. We've only amended the Constitution 17 times since the Bill of Rights in 1791, and just once in the last 49 years. So that's your Jarrow's Gem, 19, to recognize the 100th anniversary of that momentous constitutional amendment. And 100 years later, we have the first woman of color on a presidential ticket. All right, up next, we'll look at what polling says about the national environment. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. It's the first day of the Democratic National Convention, such that it is. No one of note is actually in Milwaukee, where thousands of delegates and journalists were expected to gather. Instead, it will be a Zoom call like no other, headlined tonight by former First Lady Michelle Obama. And it comes as Joe Biden, who is about to go from presumptive nominee to official presidential nominee, takes big leads in a series of new national polls. A CNN poll had him up only four points, but Washington Post ABC, CBS YouGov, and Monmouth all had him up 10 points, while NBC Wall Street Journal had him up nine, Pew Research had him up eight, and Fox News seven. Greg, these are historically bad numbers for an incumbent president. How worried should Republicans be not only about the White House, but control of Congress? They should be worried about both. As you mentioned, uh, the president is trailing significantly in the polls. If you look at the averages, which is what people should do when they see like polls that show Trump down four up or you know down 12, they should take probably the average of the polls. And I think the consensus is that the president is down by maybe the high single digits. And that's a perilous position for the president to be. The president has a lot of ground to make up. Uh, the Democrats will try and cement that lead and perhaps even increase it a bit uh, with their convention beginning today. Um, often we've seen a party get a so-called bump 
out of a convention in the polls. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how much the Democrats will increase their advantage from this, if at all, uh, but that's something to watch. As far as down-ballot races, um, as we've discussed on down-ballot counts before, what happens at the presidential level necessarily you know, percolates down to the down-ballot races for House and Senate. And um, if the president is significantly trailing Biden in the surveys, um, then it's just going to make it all the more difficult for Republicans to hold on to their precarious Senate majority and certainly makes it much more difficult for them to uh, win back the House. And in fact, the Democrats may even uh, gain a few seats there in that chamber and solidify their lead. You know, I'm not sure how good a shape Trump was in on January 1st of this year, but um, I got to think Joe Biden's nomination and Trump's handling of the coronavirus um, crisis are, are two things that are have really hurt his chances. Um, I was sifting through the Fox News poll and I just I saw the striking number. 66% said they're not satisfied with the way things are going in the country. Um, that's the highest number this poll has found since 2013. And of course, folks may simply be reacting to the fact that the coronavirus has killed more than 150,000 people in our country and isn't abating. Uh, still, that's the kind of number that hurts the party in power. And right now in Washington, that's Republicans. That's right. And I think um, it's definitely true that Trump was trailing before the coronavirus pandemic kind of uh, really uh, swept across the nation beginning in mid-March when we had all the, the closings beginning. And I wonder if um, a strong federal response um, you know, would have uh, kind of would have helped the president kind of arrest some of that uh, deficit or decline in the polls, especially for the president. You know, running for re-election and being that person at the top, the head of the the head of the executive branch. Um, so long as a majority of the public is uh, doesn't favor uh, his response to the pandemic crisis, is just going to make his re-election all that more difficult. That's right, and and so another place you can see a reflection of the national environment is the race ratings from some of the top election handicappers. Um, and they're all kind of moving in the same direction. Uh, Cook Political Reports House Editor Dave Wasserman uh, said last week he's shifted 46 House ratings in the past month. 40 of them have been in the direction of Democrats. Um, and his outlook for the House is now a likely gain for Democrats of between zero and 10 seats. So either they don't gain at all or they um, pick up 10 somewhere in there. And um, he doesn't see it likely as Republicans end up with a net gain of seats. Um, and then on the Senate side, the Cook's Senate editor, Jessica Taylor, who uh, was our very first guest on this podcast, she just moved the South Carolina Senate race rating from likely Republican to the more competitive lean Republican. Now, whether Democrats can actually win that seat or not, I'm not sure. But the fact that it's a race says something about what kind of election it could be, just based on the numbers we're seeing right now. Yeah, you look at the House ratings, you have 40 of the 46, as you mentioned. Um, I mean, one thing the Democrats have done to um, kind of help solidify their chances to hold their majority and perhaps even increase it is they have very few open seats, very few Democrats retired. In fact, there's only one district of a retiring Democrat that is really competitive, um, and that's the Iowa seat of Dave Loebsack. Um, and if you look at districts where you have a lot of Democratic freshmen defending seats that even Trump won in 2016, there's really no sure loser in there in the sense that like you have a, there's really not a district you can point to that's a sure pickup Republicans as we speak today. And um, we're seeing a lot of ads from a lot of these House Democrats, 
kind of highlighting their bipartisan accomplishments and even working with the president as they seek re-election in a district the president may again carry. So the Democrats are uh, certainly favored to hold uh, control of the House. Yeah, in the Senate, I mean, we're seeing uh, some states that are coming on the board that we would not have expected six months or a year ago. I mean, if you'd told me six months to a year ago that South Carolina would be in the competitive leans Republican category or that Montana would be a toss-up, um, that would have been stunning to hear then. But uh, the, the Democrats have really opened up the map a bit and they've uh, widened uh, the possibilities for them to possibly win a Senate majority. They need a net gain of four seats to clinch that with 51 seats. All right. Um, now, back to the convention. Uh, anyone you're watching for tonight or, or this week? Yeah, I think um, among the roster of speakers uh, for Monday night, there are two I want to point out. Catherine Cortez Masto, she's the Democratic senator from Nevada. She is the first Latina ever to be elected to the Senate. And this campaign cycle, she is the chairwoman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, where she's in charge of trying to get the Democrats that net gain of four seats they need for the majority. So uh, she has a very prominent role in uh, what her party is trying to do in the November election. And then Doug Jones, the Democratic senator from Alabama, he's a former prosecutor who prosecuted uh, two Klansmen in the 1963 Birmingham church bombing that killed four black girls. Uh, he was elected to the Senate in a special election in 2017 and faces a very difficult re-election bid in Ruby Red, Alabama, where he's up against former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. It should be uh, an interesting week, one, uh, one no one could have uh, planned for uh, early this year. Um, all right. Up next, we're heading to New York. I'm John Katko, and I approve this message. Why did Joe Biden attack Dana Balter's plan to destroy Medicare? It's going to raise taxes on middle-class people. So when Balter says... I don't support raising taxes on working families. She's lying. It's going to increase personal taxes. That's Medi right. We are going to increase personal taxes. You paid enough taxes and paid into Medicare your whole life. The Bernie Balter plan would destroy your Medicare. That money belongs to you. Dana Balter. Dishonest ads, dangerous ideas. That was an ad from John Katko, a New York Republican with a unique message that comes thanks to his standing as one of the only GOP House members in a district won by Hillary Clinton. Greg, what stood out to you? Yeah, Kyle, this adds my attention for the way in which it invoked Joe Biden in districts and states that Biden is going to lose. You'd expect Republican TV ads to link their Democratic opponents to Biden in an unfavorable manner. But this is a district, New York's 24th district, which is in and around Syracuse, that Biden is more likely than not to carry. In fact, it's a rare district that voted for Republican to the House, John Katko, while voting against Trump for president. And so the idea is to paint uh, Dana Balter, the Democrat, as more liberal than Biden and too liberal for the district. Uh, Balter says that a Medicare for all system ought to, be, ought to be done in a series of steps, first by lowering the age of eligibility from 65 to 55, and then continuing until everyone is covered. And she says there's actually a role for private insurance under her plan, unlike Bernie Sanders' plans, which would in effect uh, abolish or eliminate private insurance. It will be interesting to see how Republicans invoke Biden in ads. We did see a lot of anti Hillary Clinton ads in 2016. I'm not sure if Republicans will try and paint Biden as a boogeyman like they did with Hillary Clinton, but you do have a number of House Democrats seeking re-election in districts that Biden may lose. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. 
Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Let's first review the question and answer from three weeks ago, our last episode. And I asked, who was the last elected U.S. senator who was defeated for re-election in the primary? Kyle, I don't know if you gave this any thought over three weeks, but uh, you've had plenty of time, and let's see if you get the right answer. Well, I can't believe it was this long ago, if I'm right, but my guess is Richard Luger. That is correct, sir, Richard Luger. He was unseated in the 2012 election by Richard Murdoch, who subsequently lost to Democrat Joe Donnelly, and that seat is now held by Republican Mike Braun. If you guessed Alabama Republican Luther Strange, he was an appointed senator, not an elected senator, when he lost to Roy Moore, who in turn fell to Democrat Doug Jones. No senator has lost re-election in 2020, though Ed Markey of Massachusetts faces a serious challenge in the September 1st Democratic primary from Congressman Joe Kennedy. And now for this week's question. To honor the enactment of the 19th Amendment granting most women the right to vote, I will ask a question about women in Congress. And that is, of the 535 seats in the House and the Senate, what percentage are held by women? Now, because that calls for a very specific answer, I'll give you some choices here. And the choices are, you know, 24%, 27%, 30%, and 33%. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will reveal the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Kyle, there are primaries Tuesday in Alaska, Florida, and Wyoming. The top race to watch may be in Florida's 15th district, where Republican Congressman Ross Spano faces a serious primary challenge from Scott Franklin amid a Justice Department investigation into how Spano financed his 2018 campaign. In Wyoming, former Republican Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis is favored in an open Senate race. And then we have a deadline Thursday, August the 20th, for the National Political Party Committees and many PACs to file their campaign finance reports for the month of July. Thursday is also the deadline for candidates in Massachusetts, including Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy, to file pre-primary campaign finance reports ahead of their September 1st primary. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.